Serve Alper in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is almost every Monday, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Specifically, Cameron begins by pointing out that somehow, some way, the Oakland Athletics have scored more runs in June than any other Major League Baseball team. I ask where, for, and why, and he provides the answer to at least one of those two questions. The Oakland A's, of course, have one player, Josh Reddick, who's performed excellently after being traded away from the Red Sox. We look at another player, Kevin Euclid, who's just been traded away from the Boston Red Sox for two other players in Brent Lillibridge and Zach Stewart, who at first and perhaps second glance may not be what one would consider a reasonable return. We look at how that trade will affect the Red Sox and the White Sox and their respective runs towards the playoffs. Also included this episode, a brief conversation about Jason Hayward, what to expect from R.A. Dickey after his rough-ish start versus the New York Yankees on Sunday night, and a Chase Lounge that Dave Cameron is selling on Craigslist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Who will buy it? Will it be you? It's possible. What's more than possible is, in fact, probable, is that you will enjoy Dave Cameron's appearance on this edition of Fangraphs Audio right now. The A's have scored the most runs in June. Yes, the A's have scored more runs in June than any other team. And, and that's not because they've, through some scheduling glitch, they've had twice well, as many games or something? I think they had some games in Colorado, so that helped. Uh, but it's not like they've played 40 games and everyone else has played five. I mean, you know, they scored 117 game, runs in, like, you know, 20 games. So this is almost six runs a game. How are they doing that? Josh Reddick uh, is really good. Uh, Coco Crisp is hitting again. Uh, Jamile Weeks is drawing walks. Uh, Seth Smith set up a good month. Johnny Jones is hitting homers. And then, and what's the Spedes doing right now? Uh, he's hitting homers on the one day a week he plays. Why is he only playing one day? Oh, because he's been injured? Yeah, he's got hamstring issues. That is a strange thing. And presumably they've played some games at home, which is usually bad for run scoring. For them. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not like they've been on the road for the entire month of June. I mean, the series in Colorado, they went bananas. Uh, but, you know, the, yeah, I mean, they play in a pitcher's park. So, for the A, and they have a bad offense. I mean, even on the year, their team WRC plus in like 85. Uh, they were 29th in run scoring in both April and May. And then they were first in June. That is, uh, that's a strange thing. Which do you think, um, uh, like in terms of their true talent, are they sort of like, uh, some combination of 29th, 29th, and 1st? Right. They're probably not the worst offense in baseball. They're definitely not the best. They're probably 20th or 25th or something. I mean, kind of depends on Reddick. Like, Reddick's never done anything like this before. You know, I think he still hates him, even with his current numbers. Uh, so if Reddick turns back into a below-average hitter, uh, that's a problem. Because uh, right now he's a monster. I mean, he's got 17 home runs. He had 10 in his career coming into the year. Um, so, you know, if Reddick can keep his power up and, you know, be a really good hitter, then their offense isn't terrible. If he turns into, you know, a mediocre hitter, then they've got problems. Uh, anecdotally, too, Reddick seems like a pretty talented right fielder. Is that right? Defensively, yeah. I mean, he's a guy that's a big hit in center. 
that is strange. That is not something we would have expected. I would I would guess from Josh Reddick. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't think you get traded to Oakland and then all of a sudden like triple your career high in home runs. Like that doesn't happen very often. Although, uh, speaking of players, well, we're going to talk for, you know, at least a fair portion of, of the present podcast about players who've been traded, traded away from the Red Sox. Um, because another player who was traded away from the Red Sox this past offseason, uh, also for a relief pitcher, in the case of Josh Reddick, I believe that was um, uh, Andrew Bailey. Yeah. Um, to Houston, the Red Sox traded Jed Lowry. For Mark Melanson. Yes. Uh, Mark Melanson, who, if I'm not mistaken, has spent the majority of 2012 in the minors. Right, because he was so terrible, he got options to minors in order to get himself straightened out, and now he's kind of stuck in the log jam because they have too many good relievers. Right, they have too many good relievers. Uh, Jed Lowry, who's been, I think, after maybe a, a couple weeks on the DL to begin the season, has uh, not only been the starting shortstop for the Astros, but that team's best position player uh, by war. Yeah. By by far, yeah. Lowry's been one of the best players in baseball this year. Uh, I think, you know, Lowry's one of those guys that uh, has always had talent. Uh, you know, he hit well at times in Boston, but injuries have been a significant issue. And I think the Red Sox uh, looked at the utility infielder and said, do we want a utility infielder to start all the time and a guy we can't count on to, you know, play if we need, you know, with a utility infielder, you kind of want a guy who's, you know, uh, if your starter's hurt, he can, he can step in and give your starter a day off. If the backups hurt all the time, then you're, you got a problem. So I don't think, uh, a lack of durability is not really something you're looking for in that role. And, um, so they decided that they would rather ship Lowry off and they're probably regretting it at this point. Right. Because between Reddick and, Ad- I don't know what Reddick's war is right now, but with 17 home runs, I imagine it's in the two somewhere. Uh, I think it's like 2.7. Yeah. 2.7. And I think, uh, at least as of Sunday night, Lowry is like 2.4. Right. Uh, so, so they shipped off five wins in exchange for an injured reliever and a reliever in the minors. Yeah, and at the time, um, well, and then additionally, I don't know where Scudero. What's Scudero up to right now? He's not doing very well. He's not doing real. Well. Okay, so they but traded. Getting rid of Scudero was a good call. Well, I, well, okay, so it's a good call uh, after the fact. We can say. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, since we're judging it right, I mean, if we're going to criticize them for getting rid of Riddick and Lowry, who are doing things we couldn't have expected them to do. Then you know, under the same vein of analysis, then getting rid of Scudero is a good idea. Like you either judge them all by the, you know, right. uh, idea that we knew at the time, in which case we give them a break on Reddick and Lowry, or we, you know, uh, in retrospect say that getting rid of Scudero was not not terrible. But can we say even at the time? I mean, trading uh, Lowry for Melanson, tra- uh, it's it's sort of sabermetric uh, orthodoxy to say that trading a a, a a youngish position player with some upside for a relief pitcher, um, one who just, you know, two years prior was, uh, you know, um, no one of note. I mean, Melanson had some potential maybe as a starting pitcher, but uh, that's not a role he's going to resume anytime soon. We, Although the Red Sox, of course, have turned a number of relief pitchers into starters as of late. Um, but sabermetric orthodoxy would suggest that that's never a good idea, or very rarely a good idea. Right. I mean, I think, you know, Williamson is a first-round pick. Uh, this is a guy who has no stuff. I mean, he throws hard, he gets ground balls. Like, he's, Williamson has the potential to be a good reliever. So acquiring Mark Williamson, there's nothing wrong with that. 
Um, especially considering Boston had, you know, a bullpen influx, and especially with Daniel Bard getting moved to the rotation, they needed bullpen depth. So I have no problem with the Red Sox acquiring Mark Melanson. That was a good idea. Uh, you could probably quibble with their decision to give up on Jed Lowry so quickly. Uh, you know, with that kind of talent and a middle infielder, switch hitter, um, you know, he's not a great defensive player, but he's a passable defensive shortstop and, you know, an okay second and third baseman. Uh, you know, who draws walks and hits for power. There's not a lot of those out there, especially taking the league minimum. So, uh, you know, injury issues, uh, his up and down track record certainly contributed to the Red Sox hunting him for less than, you know, what it looks like he was worth. Um, but, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that, uh, there's a lot of, you know, not durable, uh, guys with good minor league track records who never become anything. So, you know, we could, uh, just as easily point at, uh, the Nick Johnsons of the world would be like, man, why did all these teams keep getting rid of him? Well, we could Nick Johnson. He's going to get hurt. Chad Lowry looked pretty close to the infield version of, or the middle infield version of Nick Johnson. Uh, the fact that he stayed healthy means this is a great trade for the Astros. But I don't think that we could have expected the Red Sox to know that he was going to stay healthy and do this. Right. Now, are these moves, do you think that, uh, these, these are, uh, Ben Sherrington moves? Yes. Um, these are all under, under his watch. Uh, are these moves? Do you do you think that we would have seen from the previous, uh, or from you know from uh, Theo Epstein at all? Well, I mean it's hard to say. I mean you know with Theo, uh, it's not like his track record was perfect. Uh, Theo more missed on free agent deals and in trades. His trades were usually pretty good. Uh, but he's the same guy who gave John Lackey a huge contract and gave Dice K a lot of money. And you know, uh, so it's not like we can look at Theo Epstein's uh, history in Boston and be like, well, every move he made worked. Um, and, you know, I just think that uh, with a guy like Lowry and with a guy like Reddick, uh, they're doing things that, one, they can't be expected to continue doing, um, and, two, there weren't obvious spots for these guys in Boston. So, like, Mike Avilas has actually been a pretty capable shortstop for the Red Sox. Uh, they have Dustin Pedroia in second base for that. He wasn't, you know, Lowry wasn't going to play there. Uh, third base, they had Euclid, now they have Will Middlebrooks. There was no spot for him there. So if they didn't see Lowry as an everyday shortstop, there wasn't really a spot for him on that team. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess can't really blame Sherrington too much for the decisions that he made. Okay. Um, so, so now we've, we've talked about, actually, in this case, three players, and we should mention that Scudero was, um, was straight to the Rockies for. I believe it was Clayton Mortensen. Was that, is that a one-for-one one there? Yeah, and uh, I think that was basically just a salary cap dump because they wanted to clear space for, you know, not a cap, but a you know, salary dump because they wanted to clear space for Roy Oswald. Um, they obviously didn't get Roy Oswald. They, didn't, they, got, they got a Cody Ross in the meantime, I guess. Right, yeah, and Cody Ross has been a useful player for them. Yeah, right. Um, and it also should be mentioned that Mike Avilas has played, uh, I mean, you know, his numbers are not perfect. He clearly leaves something to be desired so far as play discipline is concerned. Um, but I think that, you know, he's uh, he's on that list of um, war leaders for shortstops. Yeah, I mean, he started off on fire and he's been lousy for the last month or so. Uh, but overall, I think, you know, he's been a fairly productive shortstop. Uh, and, you know, giving Avilas playing time. Uh, you know, if that's the consequence of doing away with Scudero, that's probably a net positive even before you consider Cody Ross and the money they paid. Right. Now, the Red Sox uh, have just, uh, have just uh, this weekend, in fact, traded away um, probably the biggest name of those of the um, of the four we'll have mentioned, and that's Kevin Euclidus. Uh I guess not surprising in the sense that uh, Will Will Middlebrooks has been good to date. And also not surprising in the sense that uh, there, you know, there were certainly um, rumors about um, Kevin Euclid being traded uh, leading up to this. But surprising certainly if you had submitted 
uh, submitted this to anyone before the beginning of the 2012 season. Right. I mean, I think if you said, hey, the Red Sox are going to give away Kevin Euclid for Brent Littlebridge, Zach Stewart, and they're going to pick up half of his remaining contract, uh, you'd have to laugh at that. I mean, Euclid has been a really good player for a while. He's certainly declining and, you know, uh, not what he used to be in terms of uh, defense, especially, and, you know, even offensively, uh, there's some, some signs of decline. But uh, for Euclid to go from, a, you know, borderline all-star third baseman uh, and one of the better hitters in baseball to being given away for a bad middle reliever, a, a utility guy who isn't hitting, and you have to pick up cash. That is uh, quite the fall from the grade. What, so what was the, uh, in terms of the contract situation, what did Euclid have left? What did the Red Sox give up? Uh, I believe the White Sox are getting $5 million in deal, maybe five and a half, something along those lines. Euclid was under contract for $13 million, I believe, for the end of the season. Uh, so, and since we're about a, two-thirds of the way through the year, you're basically going to say, okay, you've got about, you know, nine million left of that. Uh, so the, they're basically splitting the difference or something pretty close to it. So the White Sox are paying, you know, four to five million, uh, and the Red Sox are paying about five million to be rid of Euclid and get Brent Lillibridge, who's, you know, was good last year. He's been terrible this year, but Lillibridge is not the worst utility role player to have around on the bench. Right, and it seems like Lillibridge can play, well, he came up, I Everywhere. think, as a, as a shortstop, right, in the Brave yeah. system? Uh, yeah, I mean, he was a middle infielder, uh, and then they kind of turned him into a utility guy. So he's played pretty much everywhere on the diamond. Right, and he had kind of stupid offensive numbers last year. I think he had he was like uh, looks like he had a one uh, one twenty four WRC plus, and uh, for as good as he was last year, he's been that bad plus some this year. Yeah, he had for power last year, which was kind of a thing he's never done before, and there's no real reason to think he'll ever do again. Uh, he's a little guy, you know, he's not a uh, a guy you look at and expect him to have for any kind of power. Uh, so last year, I think he had 13 home runs. Uh, it stands out as one of those things that was like, how on earth did that happen? Bet against that ever happening again. Okay. Uh, he's been awful this year. I mean, I don't think that he's going to continue to be this awful, but uh, 2011 will almost certainly be the highlight of his career. Right. And um, he can have that forever, Dave Cameron. Yeah, absolutely. Good for him. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, uh, whatever he does with the Red Sox, it, it may not, um, he may not have those pers- uh, personal career highs again, but, uh, you know, they might win something. Well, I mean, I guess the p- question is, will they win something? Uh, well, and, and the, thing, the funny thing is, he's getting traded from the White Sox to the Red Sox, so his playoff probabilities just went down. <laughs> the White Sox are more likely to make the playoffs than the Red Sox are. Right. Uh, so, so what is the Red Sox uh, playoff chances now, or what I should say, what are they? Because Will Middlebrooks has been uh, quite good to date. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, though, part of that has been due to some um, what could very well be batted ball luck. Also, I think he's hit home runs at a pretty serious pace. Yeah. Um, he certainly does not have Euclid's plate discipline, even this version of Kevin Euclid's. Um, I mean, what do you expect from, from Middlebrooks for the rest of the season? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Middlebrooks is going to tail off. Uh, you know, we see these high aggressive uh, power guys come up. Uh, pitchers don't want the scouting report on them. They feed them fastballs. The guys punish fastballs. The scouting report gets probably, hey, this guy can hit a fastball, throw him bendy stuff, and then, you know, all of a sudden he struggles against bendy things. So I would expect that Will Middlebrooks will see a steady diet of curveballs and sliders in the second half of the year and won't hit as well as he has. Uh, initially, but doesn't mean it's going to be terrible. Uh, I don't know that I would have uh, made this deal if I was the Red Sox, just because I think he would have a decent chance to bounce back, but there's obviously clubhouse issues and uh, you know all those things that play into it that aren't necessarily baseball decisions or on-field decisions. 
Um, but from a Red Sox perspective, I think with Middlebrooks will be acceptable. Probably not a like a great player, but a you know a decent third baseman who they think would be part of their future. Uh, it is interesting because you know the Red Sox are kind of perceived to be uh, on the fringe of the playoff race, especially in that division, third and fourth place. Uh, I think they're six games back the Yankees. Uh, but if you look at it, they have the fourth best run differential in baseball. They're actually playing pretty well. Uh, their their record is not reflective of how well they played or their overall talent levels. Um, and there's a, you know, theoretically, they're going to get Jacoby Ellsbury back at some point in the second half of the year. So I don't think the Red Sox should be looking at themselves as sellers. Uh, so to give Euclid away like this is kind of a, a little bit strange in that they should probably be trying to run down the Yankees and add talent. And I don't think this is a deal that adds talent to their team. Uh, it's, you know, again, it's hard to criticize because we don't really know the clubhouse dynamics and whether Euclid was willing to accept being a bench player. Um, you know, if, it, if he just wasn't willing to do that, then you kind of had to get rid of him. But, uh, you know, I think they made themselves worse with this trade, and they're not in a position where they should be trying to make themselves worse. Now, uh, th- this is to say nothing of the Red Sox outfield. You mentioned Jacoby Ellsbury coming back. Uh, Carl Crawford is also a player uh, <laughs> um, who they have under contract for many years, uh, I believe. <laughs> um, if I'm not mistaken, last night, Sunday, or yesterday, I guess, Sunday, their outfield was Cody Ross and Ryan Kalish, who is interesting at some level in center field, and Daniel Nava, who I believe has played well um, since being recalled from the minors. Um, but I know that Ryan Sweeney has played out there. I, I guess I don't necessarily – I haven't kept track of him of late. Darnell McDonald is also a player they have. Scott Pitsednik, I guess, has played for that team. What is their, what is their outfield – in the near and then less near future? I mean, I think the lineup they ran out there last night is more or less their regulars right now. Um, and they've still platoon and McDonald plays against some lefties. But uh, for the most part, Kalis Ross and Nada are getting the bulk of the playing time. Uh, that's probably going to be true for a little while, at least until Crawford and Ellsbury come back. Um, you know, there was some thought of trying Middlebrooks out there, but that never took place. Adrian Gonzalez played some outfield during interleague play when they wanted to get David Ortiz back in the lineup. But for the most part, uh, it's Kalish, it's Ross, and uh, you know, some combination of Nava, and McDonald. Okay, right, and then and then we expect Lillibridge to you know prob- maybe see some time out there. Probably, I mean he's uh, you know a decent platoon guy, um, but they already have McDonald to play against Lefty, so you're not exactly sure uh, how they're going to use Lillibridge in that role. They might use him um, more as a middle infield guy and give uh, uh, Avilas more time off since he's been struggling lately. So. Um, you know, I think uh, Lillibridge will play a little bit in the outfield, but I wouldn't expect him to be a regular out there. Okay. That, that's enough of the Red Sox for right now. Uh, let's, let's talk about the team to, uh, to, which, the, uh, to which Kevin Euclid was sent. We have, I think, more than once noted on this uh, podcast, your, your edition in particular of this podcast, that um, the White Sox were a team with one of the most glaring needs that could improve itself yeah. the most um, – by doing the least, I guess, in, this, yeah. in that they've had nothing from third base this year. Now they get Kevin Euclid, who has a change of scenery. Well, assume I be, uh, well, I'm assuming be handed um, the, the third base role immediately. Uh, what does that do for the White Sox over what they've um, had so far at third base this year? Well, Kevin Euclid has a pulse, and he's probably a 10-win upgrade over what they've had. If, uh, <laughs> if he just stands there and breathes, then uh, they should be expected to win 100 games because what they've gotten from Brett Morell and Orlando Hudson is uh, uh, the epitome of awfulness. <laughs> Those guys have been just an absolute black hole. 
Uh, so Euclid can't possibly be any worse than that. The bar is set so low uh, that even if he's completely finished as a ball player, he represents a serious upgrade. If he's not finished as a ball player, it's going to be one of the largest upgrades we've seen in recent history because, you know, theoretically, Euclid should still be pretty good. I mean, just from a numbers perspective, if his body isn't breaking down, I think Lips expects a 360 will be going forward. Um, you know, there's going to be some hit in terms of losing Fenway as a place for him to bash doubles, but Chicago is a really nice place to hit, too. So, um, you know, I think Euclid is going to fit right into that lineup. Uh, I, I really kind of hope they hit him in front of Diane Vifigato, so you'll have uh, the pleasure of watching Euclid never swing at anything and then Vifigato go up there and swing at absolutely every pitch he's thrown, because uh, that would just be a really fun thing to see back-to-back. Uh, yeah, that's true. Vifigato is, uh, I guess, to some degree as advertised. Um, he, he did appear to adopt something resembling play discipline last season. Last season, he, he had a walk rate, which is to say he had a walk rate last year. Um, right. He appears to uh, regressed to previous levels uh, this year, but he's, he hits home runs. He does hit home runs. Uh, so the funny thing is I'm working on a post on Josh Hamilton, and uh, Diane Vifiedo, who has atrocious play discipline, uh, has seen the second fewest amount of strikes uh, of any hitter in baseball during June, because Pitchers just know I have no desire to ever throw this guy strike. He'll swing at it anyway. Uh, Josh Hamilton is seeing even fewer strikes than Diane Vifiedo, and Hamilton is swinging more. So Hamilton and Vifiedo have about the same approach at the plate. Hamilton's just good enough to make it work. Uh, Vifiedo is not. Right, although I, I think it should be noted right there, too, right, that um, Hamilton's June has not been fantastic. Well, that's kind of the point of the post, right? So like a, a month ago, I wrote a post called Josh Hamilton, King of Swings, where I wrote about how Hamilton was not seeing anything in the zone. He was swinging everything, and he was getting amazing results, and something was eventually going to have to give. Well, the thing that gave is Hamilton's results. He's taken his ridiculous approach up another notch. He's swinging at even more pitches than he was before, and he's been terrible. <laughs> so I think at some point Hamilton's going to have to make an adjustment and, you know, start swinging at pitches like a normal human being. Now, is this the advantage of a player like Kevin Euclid? And I think this was also the case with, with a player like J.D. Drew, for example, that because they have, because of their eye, um, there's always sort of, there's multiple ways they can be effective offensively, right? Whereas, like, you talk about Josh Hamilton. Now, obviously, Josh Hamilton is sort of an outlier in a, in a lot of different ways. But even with a player like Josh Hamilton, who has uh, such amazing hand-eye coordination, or whatever it is he's doing, just amazing, produces amazing, um, you know, uh, power, velocity with each swing. That if that skill is not, if that uh, approach is not working, there's nothing to fall back on necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think with Hamilton, uh, the problem is that he's easy to pitch. Uh, that sounds weird because of how good he is, mm-hmm. but you don't have to really think about how do I approach Josh Hamilton. You just throw breaking balls in the dirt. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just throw pitches as far away from the strike zone as you possibly can, and if he hits it, you tip his cap to him like, whatever, dude, nice job, round the bases. <laughs> Uh, with a, you know, a hitter like a Bobby Abreu or a JD Drew, you need to come up with a plan. Like, you have to, okay, I'm gonna pitch in, I'm gonna pitch away, I'm gonna try and get ahead in the count so I can get him to fish a little bit. You know, you need to, like, think on the mound. And I think there's something to be said for, um, causing the pitcher to, you know, work a little bit. <laughs> when Josh Hamilton comes to the plate, there's not really any work involved. You just throw the ball as close to the backstop as you can and, you know, hope he doesn't hit it over the fence. Are you gonna need, are you gonna need some gifts for that post? Uh, well, I might require you to do some gifts for that post. We we shall see. Uh, I'm not sure whether the post is going to go up today or tomorrow. It depends on how in-depth I get. 
Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where I wrote about this a month ago, so it's a little bit of like, hey, this is still happening. Right. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if people want to read the same post a month, you know, uh, a month apart, but the fact that the results have changed so dramatically, I think, is interesting. Well, no, I, I, I think it has some merit in the sense that you're, you're revisiting it and saying, but I think if I'm, uh, I think that you left that, that first post off saying, well, it's working now. This approach is working for Josh Hamilton. Let's see if it continues to. And I think that you're, you're sort of doing a status update on this and saying, well, actually, for the last month it hasn't worked so well, actually. Right. I mean, the, I think the last line of that post was, no one should ever throw Josh Hamilton a strike again. And they haven't. So like, the rate of strikes he's seen has gone down from that post when he was already the outlier to add all outliers. Uh, and, you know, the results have been catastrophic, and I think over the last week or so, uh, even the Rangers are publicly talking about it now. It's not something where they're just like, yeah, whatever, that's Hamilton. Now it's like, you know, this is an issue and something you need to work on. Now, you, uh, today you did a post on uh, Jason Hayward, whose approach has changed, it seems, uh, yeah. from what he's been doing. What's Jason Hayward doing differently? Well, this is one of the interesting things that, you know, as we're talking about with Hamilton, generally we applaud pitcher or hitters who get more selective and stop swinging at pitches out of the zone. Jason Hayward has gotten good by going the opposite way and started swinging at pitches out of the strike zone for the first time in his career, or swinging at them more often at least, uh, and has had, you know, his best month in basically two years. I mean, Hayward in 2011 and the first two months of 2012 was an average player at best. He drew walks and he hit for some power, but uh, you know, he just wasn't anything close to what he was in 2010 when he was, you know, a standout 20-year-old. Uh, over the last three weeks or so, he's been hitting the carnation out of the baseball. Uh, he's got 14 extra base hits and 72 plate appearances, but he's not walking anymore. Uh, he's only drawn three walks in June, and I think part of that is, as I noted in the, in the post, he's hitting strikes. And so early in the season, his contact rate on pitches in the zone was in the low 70s, which is awful. Uh, over the last month or so, it's uh, 79%, which is pretty good. So when you're swinging at strikes and you hit them, that obviously ends the at-bat and you don't get to take more pitches and you don't get the chances for for walking. So it's one of those things where you could look at the walks earlier in the season and say, okay, well, these are good, he's throwing walks, but I think they were actually um, kind of the result of the fact that he was swinging through pitches he should have hit and kept his at-bats going. And now that he's not keeping his at-bats going by swinging and missing, he's not getting walks. Uh, but instead of getting doubles with home runs, and that's better. Now you said seventy uh, percent. He's made contact with seventy percent of uh, pitches in the zone earlier in the season. He's made uh, he's made contact with I think you said eighty nine percent, something like that, um, in June. Can you give us a sense of of um, uh, contact rates when that becomes reliable? How many plate appearances it requires? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not something that's uh, stable every month, but I think contact rate on pitches in and out of the zone, the uh, month-to-month correlation is like 0.7. Um, so it's pretty strong, uh, you know, especially considering we're dealing with like 100 plate appearances in a month. For most players, very few things could do a 0.7 correlation in 100 plate appearances. So, um, you know, usually you won't see hitters taking drastic changes in contact rates or approach uh, from month-to-month. There are certainly guys who do make changes, um, and sometimes they're real, sometimes they're not. Obviously, Brent Morrell last year was a really good example of when one month doesn't mean anything. Um, but Unfortunately, I you know, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That right, was... You were on the Brent Morrell bandwagon that has uh, crashed, burned. So uh, hard. And, like, I was really there. Yeah, I think that bandwagon like, killed some small children on the way. I it's, know. It is one of the most epic burns uh, we've seen recently. Yeah, that is weird. Though. It really seemed like... Something had changed, and you know what? Maybe it had. I wonder, though, uh, and of course, um, 
uh, yeah, I don't know if this exact study exists, but that was that was from like a certain point in like the middle of August maybe to the end of September or maybe it was like mid July to end of August. Whatever it was, it it really lasted to the end of the year. And then he began this year, and it was not; it was gone. You know. Yeah. You wonder if, and I, but although I feel like Eno uh, did a did a piece on arbitrary endpoints where he had looks at Prince Fielder. Uh, you know, like on the one hand, if you said like this season is much different than the next season, if you had taken as an arbitrary endpoint the middle of season X, and then looked at X plus one to the middle of that season, he actually looked like the same player year to year. Um, you know, that would suggest that players don't change that much, you know, even through the off season. But it looked like with Morrell, like he had something going, and he just lost it over the over the winter. Right. I mean, I don't think there's any question that Morrell tried to do something differently. You can't go from drawing six walks in five months to drawing 15 walks in one month and have it be an accident. I mean, there was something he was doing differently. Uh, but I think it's one of those things that's a nice lesson in. Uh, the fact that not all changes are sustainable. And so certainly with Hayward, I don't expect him to keep, you know, slugging 800 like he is this month. Uh, the article wasn't written to be like, this is the new and improved Jason Hayward. He's going to turn into a, you know, Diane Vieto and swing at everything and be really good. Not that Vieto's good, but uh, the point wasn't that Hayward's going to, you know, maintain their skill set as much as it was just to note that he's doing things differently and he's hitting for power while not drawing walks, which is something he's never shown before. It was actually an interesting addition to his skill set. I mean, I think you want to have guys who can, succeed in different ways, like we talked about with Hamilton. You know, if Hayward can uh, kill pitches in the middle of the zone and not draw walks, uh, and he can also stare at pitches outside the zone and take his pitches, uh, that's the best of both worlds. Right, and, and of course, some of this is just a... Uh, I think it's impossible to ignore the fact that adjustments occur, right? Yeah, um, right. Players are adjusting. Like, you know, like you mentioned, like, Hamilton, if he wants to continue to succeed... Um, and of course he's he's supremely talented, but it appears as though an adjustment will have to occur. Same thing with Jason Hayward; he appears to have made an adjustment. I assume that we'll be seeing pitchers make an adjustment to his adjustment. Yeah, I mean there's a continual game of chess going on between the pitcher and hitter. Uh, scouting reports change. You know they're watching video more. They're seeing what guys have done recently. So I don't think there's any question that pitchers are going to notice that Jason Hayward has been killing it the last few weeks. And they're going to change, you know, what they were doing versus what they were doing the last three weeks. And, you know, say, hey, look, if I haven't been working, let's stop throwing Jason Hayward pitches down the middle. And in April and May, he wasn't hurting them. He was swinging and missing and pitches in the strike zone. So it probably gave him some more confidence. And, uh, you know, they were willing to challenge Hayward. Now that he's spent three weeks demolishing baseballs, uh, they're probably going to go back to throwing pitches outside the zone. Um, before we go, Cameron, I want to ask you um, want to ask you about R.A. Dickey. Um, Ari Dickey is a player um, who obviously uh, there there are a number of interesting stories about him. Um, you know, a lot of them are off the field, but of course, what he's done on the field is very interesting too. Uh, essentially, remaking himself as a pitcher. Um, it, these stories have been told, um, but his story has gotten even more interesting this season because he's been so proficient with the knuckleball, in the sense that. Knuckleballers, we give a um, you know require their own adjustment anyway because they tend to have success, um, better success uh, um, on batted balls than other sorts of pitchers. They tend to have lower BABIPs. They tend, I believe, to have lower uh, home run per fly ball rates. Um, even even ignoring that, R.A. Dickey has had some of the best defense independent numbers this season. 
Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio and differentials have both been excellent. His Sierra, his XFIP, all that has been excellent. Um, and, of course, his two starts before his Sunday night start, you know, two one-hitters, and they were both masterful games, I think, over 10 strikeouts in each. He did not pitch as well against the Yankees. Uh, you know, for you, though, where is R.A. Dickey in between the, the you know, Every game's a one-hitter, and uh, you know, getting beat up a little, a little bit against the Yankees, who obviously are very, you know, have one of the best offenses in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that you have to really take an opponent into account last night. I mean, I don't think, uh, from what I saw, I didn't watch the whole game, but from the pitches that I saw that he threw last night, uh, he wasn't throwing the ball that badly. He got hit by some pretty good hitters, and so, uh, you know, like the pitch Nick Fisher hit wasn't the worst pitch ever. Um, so, you know, I think that you just kind of have to tip your hat and say. Facing that lineup, uh, giving up you know a few runs in five innings, uh, you know I think he still struck out three guys, he walked three, but you want to pitch around those guys. I'm, so I'm not ready to say like oh his command was awful. Uh, you just don't want to throw as many strikes to the Yankees as you do to other teams. And so uh, I, I would just kind of write last night off and say um, you know it was the Yankees, uh, not a good matchup for any pitcher, um, and his knuckleball wasn't quite as effective as it had been previously. Uh, that happens, you know knuckleballers are notoriously inconsistent based on the weather and uh, how they're gripping the ball, and, and the, like a small change for knuckleballer can produce a huge change in results. So, um, you know, I think it's one of those things where I wouldn't be overly concerned if I was a Mets fan, and I'd still uh, expect his next start to be really good. I and mean, I don't think Dickey's going to throw one-handers every time out, but, you know, you could probably make an argument that uh, on merit, Dickey's one of the ten best pitchers in baseball right now. Yeah, that's the uh, Cy Young race. In the National League is going to be uh, well it is interesting currently and it, and you know provided um, the players at the top uh, you know of the leaderboards stay healthy it appears as though it's going to be pretty interesting from here on out because you have Dickey uh, of course Steven Strasburg depending on his inning totals um, you know is likely to be there uh, towards the end of the season Zach Greinke you know is probably been received too little attention for his accomplishments. Uh, Gio Gonzalez, Matt Cain, and uh, and and maybe even Wade Miley. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take uh, people who won't be in the race at the end of the season for two hundred hours. Right. Well, may- maybe not. Um, but although Wade Miley's not been bad. <laughs> oh, no, right. I mean, Wade Miley's been uh, surprisingly good. I just uh, I do not expect Wade Miley to continue to be mentioned in those names. But a lot of parity, it seems like, uh, at the top of, um, or, or I should say, I don't know if you get parity at the top of a leaderboard, but a lot of names sort of clustered around there, perhaps more than we've seen, um, in, in at least for me, in recent years. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think right now it's Kane and Dickey, and then everyone else is probably a notch below that. Uh, at least I, I would say that's where the voting would fall. I think if you polled most baseball writers today, uh, Kane and Dickey would probably get 95% of the votes between them, and the rest of the field would split the rest. Um, but I think, you know, the, obviously the fact that they were so good on the same night uh, kind of thrust them into the spotlight, uh, and they've gotten the most notoriety. Uh, throwing a perfect game helps. Doing What R.A. Dickey is doing in New York helps. Um, so it's not anything against Gio or Strasburg or any of those guys, but I think right now it's probably Kane one, Dickey two. Uh, you could flip a coin between those two, and it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, whether one significantly outpitches the other in the second half of the year. Now, with regard to that, do you think that um, in a, uh, maybe there has been research on this. I'm sure. I'm actually sure there has. Where where sort of notable events like consecutive, um, you know, like consecutive one hitters and a scoreless inning streak, or 
or a perfect game? Are, are those do those little indicators? Um, do, do those help a pitcher win an award like that? I mean, I, I have not seen research that says like you know if you throw a no hitter, you're seven percent more likely to win the Cy Young in that year. I know that Bill James built his little uh, award predictor tool, and I don't believe it took into account any kind of special performances. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean it was completely thorough and couldn't have been improved by adding that kind of stuff in. Uh, those are also the kind of things that are hard to put into a database. So if you're trying to come up with some kind of formula, uh, you know, saying okay, no hitter equals one. Uh, you know, trying to go through history and figure out, uh, which, you know, what, what kind of a point should be, how much emphasis it should get, uh, that's gonna be a little bit trickier than if you're just basing it on, like, total stats. Okay. Alright, Cameron, uh, you've done, uh, you've done your part for Fangraphs Audio this week. Um, you and I actually have a meeting to get to, uh, before too long here. Um, the dark, the dark overlord has summoned us. Uh, was there anything that uh, that needed to be said that was not said in in this edition of Fangraphs Audio? Uh, you know, I believe not. Uh, I am selling a Chase Lounge on uh, on Craigslist. We didn't talk about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, anyone interested in purchasing a pink piece of furniture that was given to us uh, that I'm now trying to resell for a profit, uh, contact Carson and he will negotiate with you. I, I have nothing. I have nothing to say about that. But um, but it should be. But I will make note of it. When is? Uh, uh, have you have you received no uh, no offers for it yet? We uh, so I put a I put up this couch that I fold in a day, uh, and then this chase lounge I put up at the same time. I got one uh, note from a lady this morning saying she was interested in it, but uh, she would recover it, which is good because it's hideously ugly. So she may, she's making a right call, but she wants to lowball me because she has to recover it because it's ugly. Uh, I'm hoping for somebody who does not want to recover it and maybe is blind. So if there are blind <laughs> people who need furniture uh, and would like to spend money on one, this would be a perfect it's piece true. for them. Well, blind people need furniture too. It's a yeah, exactly. It's an old saying. All right. Uh, well, very good. Uh, uh, stick around for some tea and conversation. But in the meantime, uh, thanks for making your weekly appearance on Fangraphs Audio. I don't think I had a choice, but you're welcome. No, you didn't. You are employed by the company. That is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.